Last Sunday, we began a new 10-part sermon series in 1 Timothy called Building God's Church. In the first sermon from the first passage of that letter, we talked about being gospel-grounded. We gave three characteristics of what it is to live a life that's grounded in the gospel. First and foremost, our allegiance to Christ becomes our dominant desire. And the second characteristic is the understanding that Christ conquers culture one conversion at a time. And then third and finally, we uh, declared that we know that right teaching of Jesus leads to right transformation by Jesus. When Paul moves from the first passage to the second passage, the theme continues. And so this morning, I want to follow his lead. And so I want to preach to you a sermon that's simply entitled Gospel Grounded 2.0. I want to give you four more characteristics of what it means to be grounded in the gospel that the Lord has entrusted unto us. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it, draw your sword, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 12, I'll conclude at verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason... I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. This morning, I want to give you four more characteristics of what it looks like to be gospel grounded. First and foremost, when we are grounded in the gospel, there is a perpetual prayer of thanksgiving on our lips. There is a perpetual prayer of thanksgiving on our lips. Think with me about the first statement that Paul makes in verse 12 when he says, I thank Christ Jesus who has given me strength. And he has regarded me as faithful, appointing me to his service. The word, I thank Christ Jesus. The word thank is a present tense verb, which means it's a continuous action. We don't just thank Christ for his salvation that he's given to us once. 
No, we thank him continually. We thank him repeatedly. I don't think that Paul ever got over being saved. I don't think it ever got stale to him. I don't think he ever just somehow uh, got bored with the fact that Christ had saved him and had sent him into his service. I think that Paul was always reminded that if God made a list of people who should not be saved, I would be at the top of that list. There's no good reason for God to save me, yet he has saved me and he sent me into his service. I don't think Paul ever got over being saved. From his perspective, from his point of view, he had at least three liabilities. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. Now, Paul, by his own admission, may say, I've got more than these three liabilities, but at least I've got these three. There was a time in my life when I was a blasphemer, Paul says. To say he was a blasphemer is to say that Paul is acknowledging that there was a moment in his life when he forcefully denied the identity and activity of Jesus Christ. He was a blasphemer. He lived life as if Jesus was not the Messiah. He also was a persecutor. If you know anything about Paul's testimony, he will be quick to tell you that there was a moment in his life, there was a season of his life when he would hunt down Christians like wild animals for the purpose of persecuting them. Now, the ultimate goal of persecution is to silence the voice of the one speaking. And the way you silence the voice is either through threats or imprisonment or ultimately death. The adversary does the very same thing today for the purpose of persecution in this country, in any country. The purpose of persecution is to silence the voice of the redeemed, to silence the voice of the saints of God. And the way those voices are silenced are by threats or imprisonment or ultimately death. And Paul would admit, I've done all those things because I knew I always had the backing of the Jewish establishment. So he was a persecutor of the ancient church. He also says, I was a violent man. In other words, he knows that he was a ruthless thug. He was a spiritual bully. He was a small man, but he carried a big stick because he had the authority of the Jewish leaders of the first century. And so he went out and he had the authority to really be violent towards people who were Christians. One of the most notorious martyrs was a man named Stephen. And if you remember his story, you'll recall that Paul was standing right there when Stephen was stoned. And Paul was giving his affirmation of what was taking place. Perhaps even Paul picked up the first rock and flung it at Stephen so that it would silence him because he kept talking about Jesus. He was making much about Jesus. Paul will say, in spite of all my liabilities, in spite of the fact that I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, Christ saved me. He didn't just save me, but he sent me into his service. I thank Christ Jesus. The word thank is present tense, continuous action, not just once, but repeatedly. I thank Christ Jesus because he gives me strength. And he, he regarded me as faithful. The word faithful is a word that could be understood as worthy. That God regarded him as worthy. So he appointed him to his service. Friend, if you are saved, if you're part of the redeemed, then God 
has regarded you as worthy. Worthy of receiving the gospel, worthy of communicating the gospel to others. Now, before you get the big head, can I just remind you what St. Augustine said? St. Augustine said that God does not choose people who are worthy, but by God choosing people, he declares them worthy. You're not worthy in and of yourself. There's not some intrinsic value that you have that God says, ooh, I really need you on my team. No, God has sovereignly selected you, and it's his selection of you that declares you worthy, that declares you faithful, that enables you to be saved and sent for his purpose. And Paul says that the grace of God has been poured out unto me abundantly. That word abundantly, it's the image of a cup that's running over. So Paul says that God's grace has been gushing in my life. It's been poured into me. It's gushing out of me. That the grace of God has saved me. And by that declaration, it has sent me unto his service. And then he also says, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus have also been poured out to me abundantly. Did you catch that? Paul says that his salvation, which is made up of the grace of God and the love of God and the faith of God, it did not originate with Paul. No, in fact, this is the grace and the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So the grace and love and faith that's in your life, it did not originate with you but it was placed in you. In fact, it was poured into you, poured into you abundantly so that it overflows out of your life. You cannot muster, you cannot manage, you cannot maintain the proper amount of grace that you need or love that you need or faith that you need. The faith that you have in Jesus Christ is a gift. It is not something that originated with you or inside of you. It's been something that's been deposited in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, it's the faith of Jesus Christ. It is his faith that's in you. It is his grace that's in you. It is his love that is in you. And of course, you might suspect that the word love is an ancient Greek word agape, unmerited, unending, unconditional love. That the love that God has for you, that the love that God demands from you to show to others, it does not come from you, it comes from Christ Jesus. Paul never got over being saved because he knew it was nothing of himself, it was everything of God. So because of that, He had a perpetual prayer of thanksgiving on his lips. I thank Christ Jesus for the salvation he's given me. That salvation is marked by the grace that is in Christ and the faith that is in Christ and the love that is in Christ. It's been poured out to me abundantly. And so my life is just a perpetual prayer of thanksgiving. Christian, can I ask you, when was the last time that you stopped and said, thank you, Jesus, for my salvation. Was it last night? Was it last week, last month, last year, last ever? I mean, when was the last time when you intentionally stopped and you said, I am saved 
because of Christ. I am saved because of what Jesus has done for me. I, I am saved not in and of myself, but I am saved because of the gift of God in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. When was the last time you just stopped and said, thank you, Jesus, for saving my sin-sick soul? There may be more than a few of us who do not need for this worship service to expire without you coming forward to kneel and pray and just say thank you. If you are grounded in the gospel, one of the marks of that, one of the characteristics of that is that you have a perpetual prayer of thanksgiving on your lips. That maybe not a day goes by that you don't stop and say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. You didn't have to, but you did. You should have killed me, but you called me. You should have left me, but you loved me. You should have forsaken me, but you've forgiven me. Oh, Jesus, thank you for saving a wretch like me. If you're grounded in the gospel, there is a perpetual prayer of thanksgiving on your lips. But secondly, when we are grounded in the gospel, there is continued amazement that Christ saved even me. Now that sounds similar to the first point, but it is a little bit different. We come to our passage when Paul says, now here is a trustworthy saying. This is the first of five trustworthy sayings in the pastoral epistles that Paul will write to his two sons in the ministry, Timothy and Titus. It's the first of five. We read it here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll read it again in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll read of it in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and Titus chapter 3. On five different occasions, Paul will say something significant and he'll buffer that by saying, now here is a trustworthy saying. In our passage, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. What a significant statement. The first part of that statement where Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that is a succinct summation of Christmas and Easter, is it not? I mean, that is just one statement that tells us the purpose of the gospel. I mean, this statement is the goal of the gospel. It's the crux of Christianity. It's the meaning of the manger. It is the climax of the cross. It is the evidence of the empty tomb. Christ Jesus came to earth, came to the world to save sinners. That's the reason Jesus came. Jesus did not come on this rescue mission to condemn you. His purpose was not condemnation, but salvation. Because we were condemned already. Paul will say elsewhere that spiritually speaking, we are stillborn before the Lord. We are dead in our sin. We are condemned already. There's no way we can be even more condemned. In fact, if God wanted us to stay condemned, all God had to do was nothing. But because of his overwhelming love for you, because he is so benevolent and gracious and kind, God sent Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit on a rescue mission. Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. This is the summation of the goal of the gospel. This is what the gospel is all about. Jesus came into this world to seek and save sinners. Maybe, maybe Paul has in mind that great 
uh, story in the New Testament of Zacchaeus. You remember that wee little man? That wee little man was he who climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as a savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. You remember that story? It's found in Luke chapter 19. At the very end of the story, verse 10, Jesus says with, I think, a smile on his face, salvation has come to this house. For this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The reason Jesus came into this world was to save sinners. Then Paul adds a very transparent phrase, of whom I am the worst. Paul is not being self-deprecating. It's not false humility. I think it's honesty. When Paul says, of whom I am the worst. The word worst is the Greek word protos. It really means first. What Paul is imagining is that if you lined up all the really bad sinners, I'd be the first one in line. I am the worst. I am the first in line. When it comes to bad sinners, that's me, Paul says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I find it interesting that Paul doesn't say, I used to be the worst, or at one time I was the worst. No, he says, I am the worst. I don't know how many people in the Ephesian church knew all the details of Paul's story. I don't know if they knew his backstory. I don't know, I don't know if they knew all the things he had done. But regardless, what he's telling them is, hey, I am, I am worse than my reputation. The reality is, that's true for all of us. Whether your reputation is really good or your reputation is pretty lousy, you're worse than your reputation, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, I'm worse than my reputation. And so what Paul is saying is that I am the worst. He's writing this letter to his son of the ministry, his protege, Timothy. And even while he writes this, later in life, he still says, I am the worst. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I think that when you're grounded in the gospel, you have continued amazement that Christ saves even you. That Christ saved even me. Can I ask you a question? Who is the worst sinner that you know? Now think about this before you speak. But who is the worst sinner that you know? You got a lot of possibilities. There are a lot of candidates in your life that could qualify as the worst sinner that you know. The worst sinner that you know could be, could be your classmate that does the unthinkable every Friday and every Saturday night. It could be your neighbor. Your neighbor who steals, I mean, borrows your stuff and then never quite return your stuff in a timely fashion. And when he does return your stuff, it's always broken. The worst sinner you know it could be your coworker, a coworker who absolutely does nothing and still gets the promotion. The worst sinner that you know, oh, it could be, it could be your children who break your heart and disobey you. It could be your spouse who started dating that floozy while y'all were still married. 
It could be, it could be that so-called friend who stabbed you in the back. It could be that church member who seems that the only reason why he exists is to get on your ever-loving last nerve. Who is the worst sinner that you know? I've told you before, and it bears repeating, I am the worst sinner that I know. Once again, it's not false humility. I'm just trying to be honest with you. I know my sin. I don't know all your sin. And because I know who I am, and I know what I've done, and I know where I've been, and I know what I've thought, and I know what I've experienced, and I know that I'm no one to blame but myself. I can honestly tell you, I'm the worst sinner that I know. And Paul says, the reason I tell you I'm the worst sinner that I know is because God has been merciful to me. And the reason he's been merciful to me is to set me on display so that you can see the unlimited patience of God Almighty. Because the patience that God has given to me and has granted unto me, if God can be patient with a wretch like me, I know he can be patient with you. If God can save me, then I know he can save you. If my God can be so kind and gracious to transform this sinner into a saint, then if he can transform me, he can transform you. Paul says, the reason I know that I'm the worst sinner is because I know where I've been and I know what God has done in Christ in my life. And he has so reached down into the depths and pulled me up and set my feet on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my life has been touched. My life has been changed. I am being transformed. I may not be all that I ought to be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. And so Paul says, I am the worst sinner that I know so that you can see the mercy of God on display in a wretch like me. And if God is merciful to me, then God will be merciful to you. The word mercy, I've heard it described in various ways. Of course, sometimes people describe mercy as withholding the punishment that you deserve. And that's true. But in God's mercy, he withholds the punishment that you deserve, and he meets out that punishment upon your substitute, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that Jesus, yeah, he paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. That God was merciful to me because he withheld the punishment that I deserve. And he squarely poured it out upon Jesus on that faithful Friday in the third decade of the first century on Calvary's Hill. But I've also heard it defined and described that mercy is God's pity toward the miserable. Man, that defines me. Miserable. When it comes to the perfection that God requires and that God demands, I fail miserably. I cannot hold up my end of the bargain. I cannot be perfect. I can't do everything right any day, even on Sunday. And I'm a preacher, right? I mean, I cannot hold up my end of the bargain. Yet God shows pity to the miserable. That, my friends, is mercy. Now, why is God so merciful? Paul says, 
so that you can be on display to demonstrate to a watching world the unlimited patience of God given to all who believe and all who receive eternal life. If you've received eternal life, then you're a recipient of the unlimited patience of God Almighty. Friend, has God been patient with you? Amen. At least shake your head up and down, right? North and south, north and south. Yeah, God has been patient with you. I remember I used to think that I was such a patient man until Jane Ellen and I started having kids. I mean, I really, I thought... I'm cool, calm, and collected, right? I mean, I never, my feathers never get ruffled. I'm just a cool cat. I mean, I'm all right. I mean, I never get impatient until we started having kids. Now, that's not an indictment against my children. That's a flaw in my character. Listen, my patience is limited. Your patience is limited. It may be at various places, but at some point you run out of patience. What does Paul say? God is unlimited in his patience with you. Whew, God is unlimited in his patience for us. God is so unlimited. He never flies off at the handle. He never loses his cool. He never flies off and gets mad at us. He is unlimited in his patience towards us. So Paul says, because of this, I can say that there's a continued amazement that Christ saves even me. If you stop and think about the glorious gospel that has been entrusted to us, we realize that Jesus sank himself down into our mess to bring out a miracle. That Jesus stooped into our sin to give us his salvation. That Jesus took our rags and wrapped our rags around him so that he might wrap his righteousness around us. What a sweet swap of salvation. We give him our rags. He gives us his righteousness. And we're wrapped in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are grounded in the gospel... There is a continued amazement that Christ saves even me. Third, when you're grounded in the gospel, there is an eruption of praise. Did you see it in verse 17? It just kind of erupts, explodes right there off the page. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. The Apostle Paul understood that where you have good theology, it always leads to great doxology. Theology is a study of God. Doxology is the praise of God. And if you have good theology, you know the identity and the activity of God, then it will always inevitably lead to great doxology, great praise of God. If you can't get your praise on, then probably you have a skewed understanding of the identity and the activity of God. Because if you really know who God is, if you really know what he's done on your behalf, inevitably it will lead to doxology. It will lead to praise. Now worship always has an object. 
So you can't say, I just don't feel like worshiping today. Worship is not about you. It's not even about a song that you sing. It's not about a posture that you place yourself in. Worship is a verb, and it always has an object, and the object is God. If you know who God is, if you know what he's done for you, inevitably, it will lead to praise. Let me say it this way. If you know God personally, you will praise him passionately. Let me say that again. If you know God personally, you will praise him passionately. Now, I realize that some of us get more excited than others of us. Some of us get excited when we're reading the encyclopedia. Others of us can't get excited even when the team scores a touchdown in the fourth quarter to secure the victory. But regardless of where you are on the spectrum, if you have good theology, it ought to lead to great doxology. Because theology is the study of God. And doxology is the praise of God. So if you know him personally, you ought to praise him passionately. So here, Paul just simply says, let me tell you about the object of my praise. It's a king, the king, the king who is eternal, which means that God's reign never ends. God does not have to get reelected every four years. He's God, whether you vote for him or not. He is God. His reign is eternal. He is immortal, which means he cannot decay or become corruptible. That God cannot take a day off. He can't fall asleep at the wheel. He can't die. God is the one true living God always true and always living. He is the king, eternal. He is immortal. He is invisible. And the only way we see this great king is through the biblical Jesus. Now let that sink in. Because if you don't see the biblical Jesus, then you really don't see God. And if you really do see God, inevitably, you've got to see God through the biblical Jesus. I know people who will say, I worship God, I believe in God, but I don't really have much to say about Jesus. Well, tragically, I want to say to them, listen, if you don't make much of Jesus, if you don't see the biblical Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man, fully God and fully human, if you don't see the biblical Jesus, then you can't see the real God. Because if you see God, the only way to see the invisible God is through the visible Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the King is eternal, immortal, invisible. He is only God. Which means there's no other God. It's not even there's no other God like Him. There's just no other God. There's nothing that can compare to Him. Now you can try to fashion in your life False gods and false idols, but God is in a class all by himself. He is the only God. So glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. You read this passage, and when you come to verse 17, it is as if, you know, Paul just erupts in praise. I'm sure that when Timothy read this letter in the confines of his house, there was an eruption of praise. I bet that when Timothy read this letter to the local congregation there at First Baptist Church, Ephesus, 
there was an eruption of praise. I bet that when young Timothy did his best to preach faithfully the word of God from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 20, there was an eruption of praise praise. Friends, we're 2,000 years later, but every time we look at a passage like this, every time we think about our God, our good theology leads us to great doxology. There ought to be an eruption of praise because God has been merciful. But if you know that God is merciful, there ought to be an eruption of praise. If you know God is gracious, there ought to be an eruption of praise. If God has been loving to you, there ought to be an eruption of praise. If God has been patient with you, there ought to be an eruption of praise. I wish God would give me a church today for us just to say, you know what? We understand that the church of Jesus Christ say amen. Let the redeemed of the Lord say amen. Let the people of God say amen. There ought to be an eruption of praise in the house. When we are grounded in the gospel, there is a perpetual prayer of thanksgiving on our lips. There is a continued amazement that Christ would save even me. And there is an eruption of praise. Because good theology always leads to great doxology. But fourth and finally, when we are grounded in the gospel, there is a good fight. I realize that verses 18, 19, and 20 may feel a little bit anticlimactic to you. I mean, after Paul just erupt in praise in verse 17, then what follows in verse 18, 19, and 20, it feels a little anticlimactic. But God in Paul is reminding Timothy that this gospel to which you are grounded, it it calls you, it demands from you a good fight. These three verses are stuffed with relationships, some good, some bad. Paul understood that everything about this faith in Christ is predicated on relationships. First and foremost, your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know him personally, then it affects and influences every other relationship that you have. In fact, it is that relationship that binds us together. We are forged as family. We call ourselves the family of God. In fact, in verse 18, Paul references Timothy as his son. Now, Paul is not Timothy's biological daddy, but Paul is Timothy's spiritual father. He says to Timothy, you are my son, and I am your father. Because our common bond relationship in the Lord Jesus Christ has formed us and forged us together as family of God. Friends, I want to suggest to you that if you are grounded in the gospel, you need to have a Paul and you need to have a Timothy. At every season and stage of your life, you don't need to have a dry spell where you have no Paul and you have no Timothy. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul is uh, a spiritual father, spiritual parent, spiritual mother in ministry. Typically, it's somebody who is older than you. doesn't have to be, but typically it is. Usually, it's not somebody who is biological family, but it can be. Normally, it's somebody who may be a little bit more advanced in the faith as you. It doesn't mean they're better than you. It just means that they have some more life experiences. They have a a deeper walk with the Lord. They have something in their life that you want in your life. And so, that person can be your Paul. 
Now, if you have a Paul, it's got to be somebody that you will listen to. Can we just be real honest? We don't listen to everybody equally. I mean, some people try to give us advice and it goes in one ear and out the other. Why? Because we don't value their opinion. You're looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some people try to give you their opinion, but you're not asking for it. You don't want it. You don't value it. They're not a a capable Paul in your life. If you have a Paul in your life, it is somebody who will say, you know, I really believe that God is telling me to tell you, run through that brick wall. And you go, okay, I'll try it just because you said it. It's somebody that you value highly. You value their opinion because the gospel that has been once delivered to them, they have entrusted into you. You need a Paul. You need uh, men. You you need a a male Paul. Ladies, you need a, a female version of that in your life. But not only do you need a Paul, you also need a Timothy. It's somebody that's coming behind you that you're pouring into. Usually, it's somebody younger than you. doesn't have to be, but usually it's somebody younger than you. It could be a family member, but usually it's not a family member. Usually, it's somebody who's just a little bit further behind in their walk with Christ. Once again, it does not make them inferior to you. It just means that maybe they're not as close to the Lord as they see you are close to the Lord. And so they say, you know what? I see something in you that I really want. I'll give you a little hint. Uh, You can't go up to somebody and say, hey, I'm going to be your Paul and you're going to be my Timothy. It usually doesn't work like that. Usually the Timothy will seek out the Paul and say, hey, you've got something in your life and I I really, can you come alongside me and kind of teach me and train me? Or sometimes it might be a Paul who says, you know what, I sense something in you and and I was right where you were so many years ago. Can we get together and just kind of share faith and share life together? And that's kind of how the relationship is forged with a Paul and Timothy. You need a Paul, you need a Timothy. You need somebody who's pouring into you, and you need somebody that you're pouring into. You need somebody who you will listen to, and your Timothy has to be somebody that will listen to you. Let me give you a newsflash. If your so-called Timothy ain't never listening to you, he's really not your Timothy. Okay, because by default, by definition, your Timothy has to kind of value what you have to say. Everybody needs a Paul. Everybody needs a Timothy. This relationship is forged through our common bond in Jesus Christ. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight. That word fight is present tense, just like thank is present tense in verse 12. So there in 18, 19, and 20, when Paul says, fight the good fight, it's a present tense verb. It means a continuous action. You don't just fight once, but you keep on fighting. What are you fighting for? You're fighting the good fight. What is the good fight? It is the purity of the faith and the unity of believers. That's the good fight. You are fighting for the purity of the faith and the unity of the believers. As a church, we don't fight against one another. We fight for one another. We fight for the hearts and minds of friends and family members. We fight for the believers. We don't fight against each other. We fight for one another. And what's the purpose? For the purity of the faith and the unity of believers. The last two men that are mentioned in our passage, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they represent some bad relationships. Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan 
so he'll teach them to stop blaspheming. What does that mean? It probably means that both Hymenaeus and Alexander have been disciplined in the church. And they've been set outside the faith family. So they've been set outside the protective custody of the faith family. They've been handed over to Satan for the purpose of teaching them not to blaspheme because the purpose of all church discipline is restoration. People that are not holding to the pure faith, people who are trying to bring division to the body of Christ, we need to deal with them. We can't just sweep it under the carpet. In 2 Timothy, Paul will say that Hymenaeus, he is one who had false teaching and his false heretical statements were like spreading like gangrene. And then Alexander is a metal, metal, uh, a metal worker and he had done Paul great harm. We don't know exactly what that means, but it just simply means that he had done Paul great harm. And, it, and to harm Paul does not mean that you hurt Paul's feelings, but to harm Paul means that you hurt his gospel. So Paul says we cannot stand for false teaching and we cannot stand for shame to be brought to the gospel that we proclaim. So because of that, we got to fight the good fight. we got to preserve the purity of the faith and the unity of believers. Friends, the purpose of being disciplined in the church is for restoration. So that if that person ever comes back and says, I acknowledge my sin, I've repented of my sin, please will you welcome me back into the faith family? By default, we have to say yes. I mean, it's not like you form a committee and say, well, are we going to accept Brother Himenaeus back or are we not? No, if he wants to come back, if he has been repentant, you've got to welcome him back. Why? Because every time you ask God to forgive you, he does. And if God forgives you, then you have to forgive others who are asking for that forgiveness. So if you're grounded in the gospel, there is perpetual prayer of thanksgiving on your lips. There is a continued amazement that Christ would save even me. There is an eruption of praise because good theology always leads to great doxology. And we are fighting the good fight. We don't fight against one another. We fight for one another. I don't know what God, through his spirit, is speaking to you right now. Maybe, uh, maybe God is drawing you to himself. Maybe you are outside of Christ and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Today can be the day you surrender unto him. All you got to do is just come forward and take one of the ministers by the hand and just tell us, hey, I need that Jesus in my life. Maybe you're here and you need to join this church because you say, you know what, I, I really like how much you guys make of Jesus. I mean, the gospel is central to everything that y'all do. I want to be part of that. Friend, if you're looking for a church home, you found one. Come and join us. Or maybe this morning you just need to come and pray. And maybe the prayer is a perpetual prayer of thanksgiving on your list. Maybe it's been a long time since you stopped and said thank you. Jesus. But regardless, can you echo with me that I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean, but oh how marvelous and oh how wonderful and my song shall ever be, oh how marvelous and oh how wonderful is my Savior's love for you and for me. May we be grounded in the glorious gospel that God in Christ by the Spirit has entrusted unto us.
Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this moment of invitation. We pray that you will lead, we will respond and surrender unto you wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.